Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. This week, Judy is chatting with Emily and Ellen Ladau, a mother-daughter duo who have the same disability. Emily Ladau is a passionate disability rights activist, writer, storyteller, and digital communications consultant whose new book, Demystifying Disability, is coming out September 7th. Her mother, Ellen Lindau, is not only her best friend, but the chief editor of Demystifying Disability. Emily and Ellen talk about how their relationship has evolved over time and how they became involved in the disability community. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell, and Judy Human. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best. And let's meet our guests today. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, we have a mother-daughter, daughter-mother couple, and I think you'll see through the discussions today, the uniqueness of Emily Ledow and her mother, Ellen. What I'm interested in doing today with Emily and her mom is really to talk about some of the unique issues that have come about because both of them have disabilities, which, you know, for me and for most people that I know, uh, we're usually the only disabled person in the family. And so I want to begin by really exploring some of the unique characteristics of being a mother-daughter, daughter-mother team. Um, Emily, what was it like growing up as a child with a mother who had a disability, has a disability? Oh my goodness, that's a really good question to start off with. And I think it's interesting because I'm not sure how aware of it I was when I was younger. I took it for granted that my mother was just like me and there was no consciousness of the fact that we were unique in being a mother-daughter disabled pair. It wasn't really until I got older that I realized how lucky I was to have a disabled role model in my life who showed me the ropes, I think in a lot of ways unintentionally, right? I think there was a lot of just advocating because we had no choice. That was what we had to do. That was how life was for us. And so when I finally came to realize how rare and special, and I don't mean special in the special needs term sense, I mean, very special. Like it was a real bond that we had because of the similarities between us. And that is something that, you know, I don't take for granted now. That's for sure. I'm, I'm very lucky. If I could just interject, though, I because I unexpectedly passed on my disability, uh, Larson syndrome, to Emily, I spent much of her early childhood until she developed this consciousness of, of being a proud disabled woman, of really fearing that she would resent me. Uh-huh. You want to talk a little bit more about that, Ellen? Well... You know, Jewish mothers are famous for guilt, and but I did, <laughs> did have a, a lot of guilt feelings. You know, um, my my experiences actually weren't quote as bad 
as what Emily had to go through in her early life. And even when she was a teenager, when she had very dangerous cervical spine surgery, but, you know, it definitely any mother suffers when they see their child hurting and knowing that you passed on this disability only intensified that feeling. Yeah, there was so much fear of me being resentful because of the pain that I went through, both physical and also emotional. And, you know, I think we have to kind of find that balance between acknowledging that disability can actually be challenging, but also acknowledging how incredible it is to have that bond in our our DNA. But my mom didn't know that, you know, how could she have known that I was going to feel the way that I did, that I was going to connect with a community because you weren't connected with the community. Actually, Emily is the one who brought me into the disabled community and made me start feeling uh, proud as a disabled woman and certainly proud of all that she's accomplished. And thank you for being her role model. (laughs) Ellen, how has your experiencing what Emily has been doing over the years changed your view around disability? It just made me realize that the differences in, in our life experiences, even though we do share the same disability, we, we grew up very differently. We, uh, my husband and I made some, I don't know if they were conscious decisions, but we also had more knowledge. Like we sent her to a camp for disabled children so she wouldn't feel that she was the only disabled person in her school, visibly disabled person in her school. I grew up only knowing my brother Jonathan as sharing the genetic disability and I think one other boy who had spina bifida in our school district. But it was a very isolating experience and we wanted to make sure even though it was very hard to send her to sleepaway camp (laughs) at such a young age that she wouldn't feel isolated. And I do think that her summer camp experiences helped her to develop into the woman that she is. Oh, absolutely. I feel really lucky that you went in the complete opposite direction of the experiences that you had growing up and said, no, we don't want her to feel alone. We want her to feel like she has a community of disabled people. And so I wish that you had had that growing up, but I'm also lucky that you came before me and were like, no, this is this is not great feeling so isolated. So they went out of their way to give me a completely different experience. But um, this is not a reflection on my parents. They just didn't have the knowledge of yeah. what was available. These camps were available in other programs, but growing up in suburban Rockland County, New York, we we were, you know, nobody told my parents that these programs were available. So I just went to the camp that my dad worked in over the summer and just was the scorekeeper all the time. <laughs> so when did you start seeing yourself as an activist, Emily? And I guess I also want to link in there, what role did the camp that you went to play in helping you become an activist, if any? I don't know that there was a specific moment that I turned into an activist. I would say I've always been 
a rather loud advocate for myself just because that was what I saw modeled for me. And so I was constantly speaking up, but then I was also shying away from disability at times. So I wanted to be identified as disabled only when it felt convenient to me and only when I felt comfortable with it. And then other times the biggest compliment that you could have paid me was, oh, I don't even think you're disabled. This was when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And then I would say midway through college, I just had this, I like to call it my quarter life crisis. At the time I was actually dating someone who was a wheelchair user. And prior to that, I had kind of said, I don't want to date somebody who has a disability because then it's going to call more attention to my disability. But suddenly I realized if I want someone to accept me for who I am, why should I not accept someone else for who they are? It was, you know, hypocritical, but also just the world that I had grown up in and how I was socialized. And so I started to lean into my disability as an identity. And I think the first very activisty thing that I did in college was they had Disability Awareness Week, and then they also had a couple of other awareness weeks, you know, right in a row. And I said, the way that you're talking about awareness to me makes it sound like it's a problem. You know, you're talking about drunk driving awareness, and then you're talking about disability awareness. So I wrote an op-ed for the school paper and got them to overhaul their Disability Awareness Week. And I think from then on, I realized that this was how I wanted to move forward. And I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I had something boiling in my blood that made me want to keep going with this. She literally called us up on the phone and said, I no longer want to be an English teacher. I want to be a disability rights advocate. (laughs) And my husband and I said, okay, we had no idea how she was going to do that, but (laughs) whatever. So where did you go to college? I went to Adelphi University and the goal had been always to be a high school English teacher. I thought I knew exactly what I wanted out of my future. And then I just took a complete like sharp turn and moved away from it. But your uh, studying English really has been what you've also been making your career on, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think, and I hope it doesn't sound conceited to say this, but I feel like I've just ended up teaching in larger classrooms. And I I say that knowing full well that you started out as a teacher and you continue to teach in your, your own way now, even if not in a classroom. And so I feel like you can teach without being in a traditional classroom. Oh, absolutely. And that's what makes my experience growing up so different from hers. The internet wasn't even a thing. And (laughs) (laughs) that that just the fact that the world is just literally at your fingertips makes the disability experience extremely different, way less isolating. What do you see as some of the major differences between your growing up and Emily? 
Well, again, I think the sense of isolation, being the only visibly uh, physically disabled person or, phys or disabled person in your school is extremely isolating. Back in the day, there was no attempt, nobody even thought that there was a way to adapt phys ed um, or What about activities. mobility equipment? Um, yeah, well, yeah. I, I didn't use mobility equipment until I was much older and uh, because I didn't see it in the community also. And um, I've said to Emily now, I think that my school experiences would have been very different had I had mobility equipment because I spent so much of my earlier years just being so fatigued from getting around that you know, I couldn't really focus or enjoy being with people. And there I further isolated myself. So I didn't want to go out in elementary school. I didn't want to go on the playground at recess. So I worked in the main office running the ditto machine. <laughs> you know, that, that's what I did. But it's like a catch-22 because you were also living pre-ADA. And so I'm trying to imagine you know, if you did have mobility equipment, would it have made your life easier in some ways? Yes. But would it have made your life harder in some ways? Also, yes. I mean, I'm thinking of the house you grew up in. It was like a three-level house, you know? Yeah. So very surprising that my parents bought a three-level house. But when I was very young, I just, you know, used my bottom to go up and down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> Until I learned to be able to, you know, climb the steps. So I think mobility equipment is probably one of the biggest ones. Just, you know, the the ease with which I've been able to get around is so different. Yeah. We when we bought our house, it was immediately this has to be a ranch. <laughs> you know, no steps. I mean, I think, you know, I'm a little older than you are, Ellen, and someone actually offered to donate a motorized wheelchair to my family when in the 1960s. And they didn't take it. And you were able to walk. And I never was really able to independently walk. And as much as my parents were very strong advocates, I really feel there was this part of them that never saw me as walking without crutches and braces, but really did see the wheelchair as something that would make me physically weaker. And, you know, I talked to my parents later on and other parents exactly as you're talking about, Emily, explaining, you know, and, and you, Ellen, explaining why the technology is important. And I think the way you described it, Ellen, of not feeling comfortable going out and doing things with kids on the playground and other activities is really a very telling point. You were feeling like you had to isolate yourself in order not to fatigue yourself or endanger yourself. Well, yeah, I'm also just feeling completely left out as the other kids were running around and I couldn't keep up. Right. So <laughs> that was the other reason for, you know, getting the, the gig in the main office. And I think that's a very important point, the issue of helping to make sure that kids can participate in activities in a comparable way as much as possible. And technology is certainly, and, and mobility technology is certainly really important. Emily, you were mentioning before that you wrote this piece in the paper around Disability Awareness Week um, that obviously was a success and changed the way Adelphi was running its activities. 
what drew you into wanting to get more involved in this whole area, not just as an activist, but focusing on media and messaging? And Rooted in Rights, was that the first project that you uh, really got involved with on a national level? And how do you engage with them now? What are they and how do you engage? Yeah, oh, so many good questions here. So in terms of media representation, I think what really drove me in that direction was my love of writing and realizing that I was never seeing myself reflected back at me in any of the things that I read and any of the things that I watched. And so in college, I actually wrote my honors thesis on the portrayals of romance and sexuality of disabled characters in uh, popular media. And so I talked about Glee and I talked about push girls and I did all of this qualitative analysis where I had people watching the shows and then talking about their reactions and so so what did you find out (laughs) I mean I think that there was a lot of shock and surprise at the expressions of sexuality especially in the show push girls where it was for beautiful wheelchair using women and they were very much sexually expressive and so people were just kind of I would say not uncomfortable but sort of surprised to see that uh, and it, it brought out a lot of the the quiet things that people don't want to say about all of their assumptions about disabled characters and obviously there's a, a lot of flaws in the study and that I was focusing on two mainstream or more mainstream shows and you know it only showed one type of disability etc cetera, etc cetera. but it was sort of my first foray into looking at how media actually impacts the way that we think about the world around us. And so I took that and ran with it and began to look at the ways that media was, you know, inaccurately portraying us or just not portraying us at all. And some of my earlier articles were critiques of things like the the book and the movie Me Before You and representation there. And then as for Rooted in Rights, so Rooted in Rights is a platform focused on amplifying the authentic perspectives of the disability experience. And we're particularly focused on addressing the ways that disability intersects with other identities. And so for me, Rooted in Rights was my opportunity to support other people to tell their stories. Because if I'm so passionate about wanting to see disability represented, then why not do my part to help make disability represented? And why not help fill in those gaps in media. So Rooted in Rights publishes pieces that fill in a lot of the gaps and the things that were not seen talked about in the media. And so I am now the editor-in-chief of their blog. I've been doing that since 2016, I think. And it's been incredibly rewarding to be able to be behind the scenes and support people to share the stories that they're not seeing represented. So I think I just naturally gravitated towards storytelling because it's how I've always connected with people and I want to help other people tell their stories. Actually, um, um, I'll add as 
that she uh, was selected as the AAPD, I think it's American Association of People with Disabilities, Paul Hearn Leadership Award, and that came Amazing. with prize money. And she used that prize money to uh, establish a fellowship at Rooted in Rights to help support up and coming writers. So um, yeah, she's definitely been a passionate storyteller and using that passion to help other people with disabilities share their stories. I believe storytelling like you, Emily, is so very important. And thank you, Ellen, for reminding us that um, you were a Paul Hearn awardee. So how many fellowships did you give out? So we were able to fund one season of fellowships, if you will. So I worked closely with two writers. My dream is to someday have a much bigger mentorship program for storytelling specifically. I would really, really love to be able to do that. So the money from the Hearn Award was able to fund two of those fellowships, which I think was just a, a taste of what I hope to be able to continue doing. You know, the typical question of where do you see yourself in five years or 10 years? And for me, it's just doing what I do now, but doing it on a larger scale and being able to support more people to tell their stories. Let's talk a little bit more about what you are doing now. So you're doing Rooted in Rights. We'll get to talking about the book that's going to be coming out soon. But what other work are you involved with? I wear a lot of hats uh, and people like to joke that I am a professional disabled person. So 24 seven, 24 <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's the only thing we talk about in this house. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm all disability all the time, but I really love it. And a lot of the other work that I do is also around educating about disabilities. So another project that I've been working on for quite some time is the Disability and Philanthropy Forum. It's a hub for learning about disability and it's specifically geared towards people who work in foundations and philanthropy serving organizations so that they can understand better the disability experience and then apply that lens to their funding and grant making work. So I'm the digital content and community manager for that. And that's been incredibly rewarding because, um, you know, say what you will about philanthropy in terms of power balances, but I feel like I'm being given an opportunity to try to rebalance some of that power and to try to take back some of the power that I think has been denied the disability community for so long. And this is a project that grew out of the leadership of Darren Walker, who's the CEO for the Ford Foundation. And he had this vision of trying to bring other foundations together to commit to including disability in their grant making. And um, there are now about 15 foundations that are part of this president's council. And uh, what are some of the benefits that you've seen as a result of the work that you're doing? So I think that first and foremost, people who work in foundations are becoming more comfortable with talking about disability, thinking about disability, and learning how to incorporate disability into their grant making. But also, we're focusing on disability within philanthropy. And 
as important as it is to include a disability lens in your grant making, how do you do that well if disability is not represented in your foundations? And so not only are we focusing on the external work, but we're also focusing on how can we create culture shifts internally so that people are more comfortable identifying as disabled, so that they're recruiting and hiring disabled people, so that disability is represented at every level of the work that a foundation does. And I think that the impact that we're seeing so far, uh, and I work with a really incredible team, my two colleagues, Emily Harris and Gail Fuller are fantastic. And together, you know, with the help of the foundations who are members of what's called the President's Council on Disability Inclusion and Philanthropy, we have been drawing people in to have these deep and important conversations with the disability community, not just for the disability community, but with the disability community. And I think that that's where the real paradigm shift is happening, is that it's no longer about without, it's about and with, and that's huge, nothing about us without us. I'd like to just throw in that I think I love that what Emily does is that she works on all levels and by that I mean she if she gets an invitation to speak at a local PTA or SEPTA she'll do that she speaks at religious organizations if they um, learn about her she speaks from you know very small organizations like all the way up to very large organizations and you know she's always said if she can help just change one mind you know, that she feels accomplished, but I have to say, I think she's affected a lot of people. Well, I think your mind was one of the ones that oh, I was absolutely. most proud of changing. Yeah, she, I may have taught her a lot of things when she was younger, and I, I definitely like to say that I helped her develop her writing skills. Um, yeah. We have this one word in our house, transition. And we used to go transition, like from Fiddler on the Roof, tradition. I know she's so Because you have to make transitions between everything you're saying so that people can follow your story. Right. And <laughs> I hammered that word into her as she got older and her writing became so, you know, clear and concise and powerful. She, she helped me realize what an amazing community the disability rights community is and all the amazing people that you know came before her you know she grew up with the ada her whole life and right. i it wasn't even i didn't even know what that was yeah <laughs> so let me ask you emily the work that you're doing with ford and the president's council are any of those materials available to the public or only to the foundations? You bet. Most of it is available to the public. So you can go to disabilityphilanthropy.org and there's a whole wealth of information available on disability. Lots of backgrounders on how disability connects with other social justice issues like gender justice and climate justice. Um, you can check out lots of videos of members of the disability community sharing their stories and their insights. So highly recommend it. And also in case I didn't send people there before, rootedinrights.org is also a good place to go for getting those perspectives that I would say a lot of people are missing in their regular media consumption. 
So Emily, you're doing much more than what you're just discussing, but I think what's important is that you really are digging down deeper and really going in the direction of providing people with information that they can read and listen to and really begin to learn in a way that we haven't previously had that kind of information available. One other area that I think would be valuable to talk about is um, your book, which is going to be coming out in September, but people can pre-order it now. And I was very privileged to be asked to review the book and give comments on the book. And I think it'll be another great addition to books that are being written by disabled individuals. And uh, you want to tell us a little bit more, it's demystifying disability. And uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what motivated you to write the book? Maybe what role Ellen you played with the book and uh, what your intention is uh, for the impact of the book? Well, first of all, just to get the important point out of the way, if you endorse the book, I feel like, you know, I've just... I peaked. That's it. I'm done. We're done. <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, um, my mom was editor in chief of the book. So, sorry, Caitlin, who is the real editor. Yeah. My, oh, my editor was my, my actual editor at Penguin Random House was fantastic, yeah, but my mother was my chief reader, editor, and listener when I needed to complain, as was my dad, my poor parents. I think they must have heard me complain every night as I wrote this book, <laughs> but they were also my biggest champions, my parents, and I'm very lucky for that. And so the book actually started because in 2019, I was on a podcast called Call Your Girlfriend. And that was with a good friend of mine, Kelly Dawson, who is a writer who has cerebral palsy. And she's incredible. You can find her on social media. It's at the crosswalk is her handle. And I love her because she's just like me and that we really like to keep it real and honest about disability. And after I was on that podcast with her, an agent reached out to me and said, you know, I've read your writing before. Have you ever considered writing a book? And so at first I thought I would write a book about the experience of being a disabled mother-daughter pair. And I, I wrote up a whole proposal for that. And then my agent That's came her up. next book. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Whew. I don't know if I'm ready for that. But when my agent came back to me and she said, you know, this is a really fantastic story, but something about the way you communicate tells me that maybe you're the person to help give people a little bit of a starting point for disability. Because a lot of the books that exist about disability right now, which so many of them are fantastic and powerful, also operate on a little bit of an assumption that we already have some of the basic understanding of disability. So an understanding of what disability is, how do we talk about disability? How do we think about it? What is disability history? What does that even mean? And, you know, how do we interact with disabled people? just like with anyone else. And, you know, how do we see disability in media? Do we see disability in media? And so I wanted to give people 
that starting point to get some of their questions answered so that then they can take that knowledge, use demystifying disability as a reference book and consider it just the beginning of their learning. I want to make super clear that I'm one disabled person. I speak only for myself. I am not the expert on all disabilities, but what I wanted to do was clear up or demystify some of the questions that people have so that then they can take that knowledge and use it to be better and more informed allies, advocates, accomplices, whatever you want to call it for the disability community. I think some people have referred to the book as a disability primer yeah. or disability 101, but I want to make it clear that it is not a textbook. Not a and, textbook. And as Emily said, there's no quizzes on any of the content of the book. She says that in the book. No pop quizzes. Did you um, intend for your mother to play the role that she did play with the book as you were writing it? <laughs> I always knew that that was going to be the case. I mean, so my mom is my best friend. You know, if I can't trust what she says, I can't trust what anybody says. And so uh, I got very, very lucky that she was willing to go on this wild ride with me and, you know, read the book so many times that I think you're sick of it. <laughs> Sometimes she just starts reciting the intro to me. <laughs> Actually, ironically, <laughs> the first, when she started writing the book, her first, she read me the first paragraph, and I just immediately said, no. Yeah, she was like, absolutely not. Do it again. Too textbooky. <laughs> so, yeah, all, all credit for reining me in if it got a little academic goes to her. <laughs> Did this experience bring you closer together? Except for when we argued over everything. <laughs> we, we have a big history over comma placements. I don't understand <laughs> how she was taught commas. Oh, she I does was. not use enough commas. <laughs> that was our biggest. Commas are excellent punctuation marks. <laughs> yeah, no, we we're nothing will break our bond. Certainly not this. So Emily and Ellen, in the last couple of months, you kind of took a twist in relationship to injuries. Oh my gosh. Uh, the last couple of months have been a bit of an unexpected circus around here. So I was sitting in a chair in the corner of my living room right behind me and I dropped my water bottle and I was thirsty. So I leaned over to pick it up. And it was just a little bit too out of my reach. I have, you know, contractures in both arms. So my arms only go out about this far. And so I thought, you know, I could just lean forward and reach it, but my arm didn't go far enough and my whole body went down. I fell right on my left leg and just twisted the whole thing. And, you know, I broke my leg, dislocated my shoulder. And so the all on the same side. So that oh, yeah. Good. Like my whole left side was just like, we're going to rebel against you all at once. And my leg decided instead of healing to just, you know, go in the opposite direction of healing. And so we ended up going through the whole process of me having surgery at the end of June and it's, it's been a long road. And I think what's been especially complicated is that, you know, here are the two of us. My dad does a lot of the heavy lifting around here, literally and figuratively, um, because he is the most able-bodied of the three of us. But the two of us have just been trying to figure out how to navigate 
the whole situation. And uh, I swear we could be a reality television show. It is, it is <laughs> quite interesting. Two people in power wheelchairs try, trying to help each other. <laughs> but, you know, we do what we have to do. It, it hasn't been easy. The cast comes off August 11. And then hopefully once she's able to start bearing weight, she'll uh, regain a lot more independence. But it's it's been an exercise in figuring out how to further adapt the things that we've already had to adapt. So what were some of the lessons that you learned? Patience. That's the biggest one. And one that I feel that we already have had to have a lot of because of life in a disabled body. I think that is an interesting contradiction that people have a hard time wrapping their minds around if they're not disabled. The understanding that disability in and of itself can be a challenging experience and also that we can hold room for pride and feeling proud of who we are and embracing the identity and the community, the culture, the history. So, you know, I I think I'm even relearning because, you know, bodies are not static they evolve constantly I think um, I think what you really learned is almost a preview and you've you've seen this with me as my level of disability has progressed as I've gotten older I think she kind of got literally a crash course in how her potentially her levels of independence uh, might change as she gets yeah. older. So Bodies change. Yeah. So I think that's really one of the main lessons that you learned. Yeah. Is, You're uh, nobody is static. Absolutely nobody. Everybody's levels of movement of mobility change. And that's normal and that's okay. And I think that we need to kind of hold some space for the fact that bodies are not static and that they evolve. Were you able to get the support that you needed? I presume you used more personal assistance service, maybe still are. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's another thing that is super important to acknowledge is that even with my mother's and my level of know-how in navigating different systems, it's still really challenging to obtain the support that you need. And I am a huge believer in home and community-based services, of course. But the the truth is that right after my injury, we kind of freaked out and we were like, how are we going to get you know, community and and home-based supports in place as quickly as we need them. And so I spent a a few days in a nursing home, you know, because we, we freaked out and we were like, we have access to these things, but it's kind of hard to get them. It's challenging. It's expensive. It requires a lot of phone calls. It requires logistical know-how. And so, yeah, you know, I went from hospital to nursing home, but then, was um, miserable and the care was really substandard. Shocking. I mean, what do you expect? <laughs> I mean, when she came home, it was obvious that the, she wasn't even cleaned properly, I hate to say. No, it, but it, that's the reality of, uh, for a lot of disabled people is, you know, they're not given the option to have home care. And so um, it was, again, <sighs> 
an unwelcome reminder of why I do what I do, why I am an activist. So are you going to be writing about any of this? I think so, because I really want to talk about those contradictions of feeling pride in who you are, but also recognizing that bodies can be fallible things. Being disabled is hard. Yeah, it's (laughs) hard. And I think we really need to get okay with acknowledging that that contradiction exists. But also when I say that being disabled is hard, I'm not asking you to pity me. I'm asking you to do something about it. I'm asking you to support us. yeah, Yeah, like I'm asking you to advocate for home and community-based services, to advocate for access to healthcare, to advocate for better public transportation. You know, it's like, I think there's this assumption that when you talk about disability and when you talk about something changing in your body, that people are looking at it as a sob story, but no, it's a call to action. Well, this has really been a great opportunity to be with both of you. Ellen, thank you so much for bringing this lovely daughter into the world and thank your husband for his part in this. (laughs) (laughs) We'll let him know. We'll definitely let him know. And Emily, thank you so much for all you've been doing and all you'll continue to do. And I will also put information in about how people can pre-order your book, which will be coming out in September. Is that correct? That is correct. September September 7th. A very quick question with a simple answer. What brings joy to your life? My mom. Oh, your boyfriend's not going to be happy if he watches this. What's your boyfriend's name? Oh, Eli. He's good, too. I'll keep him, too. (laughs) You better. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Judy. History won't forget us or You've been tuning into The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week, our guests were Emily and Ellen Ladau. Be sure to follow Emily on Twitter at Emily underscore Ladau and follow her blog, Words I Wheel By. Also support Rooted in Rights on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And be sure to purchase Demystifying Disability. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Juaren. And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. And follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.